from Integral Life, welcome to Everyone is Right. Ed Kowalczyk is the lead singer for the band Live. He counts among his influences the writer Krishnamurti and integral thinker Ken Wilber, and his lyrics reflect his mystical and spiritual tendencies. In this intimate discussion, Ed talks about how the very essence of an authentic performance is awakening and sharing with the audience a glimpse into that oneness that is everybody's natural condition. This was originally published in October of 2003 and is one of a series of free classic discussions we're making available on the Everyone is Right podcast every Thursday afternoon. Stay tuned next week for another integral classic. Hello. Eddie Kay, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Ken. How you doing? Are you getting ready for your trip to New York and then over to Europe? Uh, trying to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where do you guys meet up with Bon Jovi? We meet up somewhere in Germany. We're actually going over to do this TV show in Holland first. You're on Conan? Tuesday night, yeah. Tuesday night. Yeah, we're actually leaving. We're going to go to the airport tonight. Cause oh, so home. this is the last conversation we'll have before the Beyond Irony tour begins. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, actually, I'm going to have a world phone, too, so we can catch up. I can, I can catch up with you. It would, love, it would really be fantastic to get sort of live reports on live. Absolutely. One of the things we'll do is carry, you know, just some ongoing conversations about your experience with the entertainment world and, and attempts to bring some sort of content into a field that's resisted it mightily. Cool. <laughs> so you're going to be hitting a few stadiums uh, opening for Bon Jovi. Yeah. Are you psyched? Oh, totally. It should be quite an experience, though, um, doing a double header with somebody like that. Wow, this shows just those are massive. I mean, it's just like I think the smallest show is fifty thousand people or something. Yeah, standing up in front of fifty thousand people. I mean, the amount of chronic energy you have to generate in order to stand up to that number of human beings—it's a real. It's like a subtle body weightlifting. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, totally, totally. Especially when you're opening for another band. Bon Jovi loves your work. They've been trying to get us to tour with them for years, and we just never hooked it up. We never had schedules that kind of met. And, they, and, you know, they're boys from New Jersey. They're like... Exactly. Right across the river Asbury from you. Park. And you know, we know Asbury Park produces, I mean, not just Bruce Springsteen and, and Southside Johnny, but there's a whole culture of really, really kick-ass rock that comes out of that. Absolutely. And I think it's because it's so damn blighted. It's just so awesome. That whole area of the country is just freckled with these small towns that, that go nowhere. And so that's sort of the only outlet you have. Yeah, absolutely. It must be sort of the Liverpool phenomena, too. Absolutely, yeah, same difference. Yeah. Um, so we've talked frequently about the difficulty of almost any entertainment medium, but certainly rock and roll, carrying some sort of content, an actual content, a content that you might actually believe sincerely, a content that might not be ironic or not be sort of flippant or not be wise-ass. Not that those aren't great. I mean, that's a large part of what rock and roll will always be is kind of a rebellious, you know, bad boy kind of attitude. That's fantastic. But when it just sort of disallows, actively disallows some of the type of music that you've tried to do, that's when it starts to get sort of weird. And I think there are two things about that. One, your fans, including me, love the music. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic what you're doing. Uh, and you have all sorts of people that are really cheering for what you're doing. And certainly, you know, Stuart Davis and uh, any other songwriters of the generation look to live 
as about the only really popular band doing this kind of stuff and getting away with it. So on the one hand, you've had an enormous amount of success, but on the other hand, as you know, the common criticism, if there's a criticism made of live, whether it's from uh, sort of upscale rock critics to people on Amazon, it's that live has no irony. Live is sincere. Live is as if that's some sort of put down. And what's, I mean, what's your actual experience of that? Do people think that because you're singing about something uh, of value or worth that you're what, trying to cram your view down their throat so that you're serious or that it's like homework or something? Absolutely. That's what it is. It's yeah. Like, you know, you're not supposed to mix that kind of thing with the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know? Right. It's like it's, it's somehow not part of the style, not, not acceptable. And so it just so goes against that current. That. Absolutely. And um, I'm into all kinds of music, and I'm... I, I grew up on Dinosaur Jr. and the most ironic rock and roll there was. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, I'm just personally not capable of that much irony. I just, yeah. I'm just not, I, I mean, I was just born without that gene. You yeah. Know? Just, you know, the only way I can get on stage and actually feel comfortable in a, in a room or an arena full of people is to just be totally naked, you know, right. be totally like with them. And I think that that's, that's what people appreciate about us. It's also what people don't appreciate about Yes, you're us. cursed with authenticity. Yeah, exactly. I'm, not, I'm just incapable of it. I can't take it up there, you know. And, and, you know, I think about a band like Nirvana. Yeah. To me, Nirvana was great because they deconstructed, you know, all the stuff that was bad. And they, they kind of trashed their guitars. And, right. And then, but with the songwriting, they took it forward. Yeah. Because Kurt was so true and so his heart yeah. was so there. Yep. You know, whereas, like, what I think has happened in rock and roll especially over the last couple of years, is that it's all just deconstructed. It's not, there's nothing to me that, that screams of heart. Yeah. Screams of kind of like, I think that the core of the rock and roll tradition, what makes it great is the song. Yeah. And the heart of the song and moving that forward. Yeah. So, yeah, that's just where I'm at. I, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. And Well, there's, it's part of, I think, this whole kind of unfortunate climate of boomeritis or deconstructive postmodernism is that deconstruction is fantastic if it's followed by some sort of sincere reconstruction. Absolutely. So you're allowed to have irony if it's followed with authenticity, that kind of thing. Sure. But if all you have is, is irony, if all you have is deconstruction, then you really end up in this sort of nihilistic wasteland. Yeah, and yeah. that's somehow celebrated as if that's really cool and that's in and so on. Um, and that's one of the really, you know, one of the major problems about it. And I'm with you. I love all kinds of music. I, you know, just the funkier and the more ironic, all that's great. But if there's no room for the type of sincere transmission that you're doing, then Something's a little out of whack somewhere. I agree. I think there's a way to do it. Um, you know, live, if I can talk about myself. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, we've, uh, you know, we've always taken the approach of like, okay, we, we want to come to this really creatively, really differently, but at the same time move what we think is the tradition of songwriting, you know, pick up the flag in the relay race and take it forward. Right. So, like you said, without, without something else, without that other thing, without that authenticity, without that sincerity at some level taking it somewhere else you just wind up with nothing probably the cd that was some of the most popular music you've done was throwing copper um at the same time though if you actually listen to those songs like lightning crashes those are very authentic songs they also manage to be pop brilliant nuggets so throwing copper sells what five six million copies something like that and then you take all of your pop capital and you put it into a CD like Secret Samadhi. 
And every agent in the world that was associated with you must have been pulling their hair out by the handfuls because it was such a risky, non-popular thing to do. What was your experience about that and the whole reception and the change-up, so to speak, and what happened? You know, making that record, Secret Samadhi, for us was just, it was so much fun. We just had a blast just jumping off this precipice just leaping into this new space of being a known band well i think that we just hadn't we didn't really know what that meant yet. yeah we were just still being us the last thing from our mind was making throwing copper part two yeah <laughs> I, you know that was like the furthest thing away i, I wouldn't even know how to do it yeah you know? i mean even to this day it was like oh man it sold six million copies wouldn't it be great to do that again well sure but i wouldn't know how to do it yeah we didn't know how to, we did it the first time we can't repeat what we don't know how we did Exactly. I, mean, I think that says a lot about who we are and who I am as a songwriter is that, you know, I really do allow these things to emerge. I'm not sitting around, you know, calculating business. Yeah, calculating being a, a music businessman, you know, like, okay, well, how do I do lightning crashes again? Yeah. You know, it, it just doesn't work that way. Those, yeah. You just can't fake those things. And Secret Samadhi was just this kind of um, eruption after that. And it really did freak people out. But I, I really love that record. I think I think it's brilliant. I think it's a lot of people's favorite CD. What, how, how much did it sell, though, out of curiosity? It still sold, like, over 2 million copies. Which is still lot. astonishing. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm York, Pennsylvania enough to, to never think that a million records isn't a lot of records. Yeah. <laughs> well, as you know, it's part of the insanity of the entertainment business that you're not judged by the fact that a CD sells 2 million. You're judged by the fact that it's 4 million less than its predecessor. I know. In some bizarre calculus of pain, that's a loser. <laughs> I, I haven't quite figured that one out, but you know how the game is played. It's really pathetic, actually, in certain ways. Um, but Secret Samadhi was also, I don't want to say it was a coming out, because you'd always been out, but it was certainly a lot more frank about your own spiritual and integral orientation. I mean, the title itself, Secret Samadhi. You know, yeah, in some ways it was... You know, it was the most interior record I think I'd ever allowed myself to do, even though yeah. you know, the songs were personal before that. This was a real sort of, you know, I was just allowing it to kind of come out. And, and um, what's great about listening to that record for me now is that I look back and I go, whoa, like I'm still wowed by it. You know, yeah. as if I, you know, I'm looking at someone else's work. It's really yeah. a trip. Yeah. When did you get interested in these things, spiritual, transpersonal, integral, that kind of thing? Wow. You know, I started reading Krishnamurti when I was 18. I didn't know they got Krishnamurti in York. Oh, totally. There's this great great store, um, (sighs) New Visions Bookstore. Awesome. It was near my my junior high school, and uh, it was owned by these two gay guys who were just wonderful. It wasn't a huge store, but they peppered it with a lot of really great stuff. And it's kind of new agey, but also at the same time, you know, they had... You know, they had the classics in there, and they had Krishnamurti. And so I was just in there just totally by accident one day and picked up, I think it was You Are the World. I think the one that really moved me was Freedom from the Known. And I just remember just it totally woke me up. Wow. Just like, you know, and so it became my secret. You know, it became my sort of... Uh, secret samadhi. Absolutely. It yeah. was just this inward sense of knowing and understanding that, that really fueled the entire trajectory of life from that point on. Yeah. But that's when it started. And you were, you say, 18. Yeah. Live had been playing for a couple of years in the garage, hadn't you? Yeah, we, had start, we started the band when we were 13. Yeah. But we, had, you know, we hadn't really started writing songs on our own until we were about 17. Yeah. And so we were still really just total 
fledgling. We didn't know whether we were going to be new wave, heavy metal. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> so you're 18, you're reading Krishnamurti. How did you get out of York? Well, we got um, every single record company on the planet turned us down. Did you actually go out actively trying? Yeah, yeah. We went. We used to we we play at CBGB's um, every like every other Monday, and we somehow pulled together a hundred bucks to get in the van and, and, and make it to CBGB's. And how, who booked you in there? Uh, the owner's name is Hilly. He's still there. He's his big beard. You see him every once in a while when they do documentaries like on the Ramones. And, and well, that guy's going to have to go down in, in – he's going to have to be inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame himself. I think he might have been. God, I, I, mean, like I mean, Blondie, the Ramones, Patty. The, I mean, who didn't get a certain start there? In a, I mean, Talking Heads, can you imagine going – and they used to actually – all the groups I just mentioned would sometimes be on the bill at the same time. At the same time, Stevie Jeeves, yeah, and – the, actually, the man, the man behind behind the scenes was um, was this guy who's still with us. who's my manager, Gary Kerfers, who actually at one point managed Talking Heads, Debbie Harry, Eurythmics, right? All those guys. So they were all kind of at Overland, which was which was Gary. So you were playing. So you were doing CBs, and and nothing is kicking. I mean, every major label is turning you down, as they always do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody but Gary. And Gary showed up one day, and it was kind of like you know, it was really our last showcase we were going to just kind of quit for a while wow. break because it was just getting so ridiculous and um and gary walked in he, i remember he's wearing a flannel shirt he walked into the back our, our dressing room at tvs and he said it's a great show so let's do great things together and we said okay great as long as i don't have to go back to washing dishes we'll do whatever you want to do oh wow yeah you know, and so we went and made a record three months later that was mental jewelry outrageous uh where'd you record it we recorded mental jewelry in milwaukee well, Milwaukee's, you know, that's got some, you know, Prince and everything. That's got some kick-ass studios, it, don't they? It was a fun place to do it. It was, we, we always, like, we look back on it, we're always, like, freaked out because while we were there, Jeffrey Dahmer was killing everybody. Oh, my God. Like, four blocks from where we, where we were. Oh, there. my God. <laughs> we look back, we were like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. You guys were one shot away from being parts in a refrigerator. <laughs> Wait a minute. Spring of night. Oh God! <laughs> Where did he live? Right oh, 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 Lord. Um, let's see. We met 1995. Um, you had read what? Brief history. Brief history. Yeah. How did you get a hold of that? My favorite bookstore in, in New York is Coliseum. I love it because they, the people who own it are cool and they put out the coolest stuff. Yeah. Like out front. So I was walking through and I just, I just looked down at it and I, I saw your picture and I thought. Hmm, this looks interesting. I'll buy it. It's just it's just as simple and as easy as that. Uh, I just picked it up. That was the only thing I bought. I hadn't heard of you before that, and read it and just Wilburite right here, <laughs> just immediate. And I I, did, I think I read it in two sittings. Yeah. Went like you know, and it um it just blew my mind. That's great. That's great. So that eventually uh, the CDs kept coming. The last major uh, MTV video that you did is the one that uh, everybody refers to as Eddie Drowns. Um, it was that awesome video with that uh, whole alley full of water coming at you. Oh, yeah, yeah. For cry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just really exquisite. And then you were saying now that there's, because the whole MTV corporate rock scene has gotten so really stilted and stultified and predictable and rutted and boring and any other terms you want, sure. that there's this whole kind of alternative music um, venue opening up. Um, 
modern rock obviously hit its hit its stride in like the early to mid '90s with you know Nirvana and Soundgarden. Were all it seemed like all these bands, all these amazing bands, were peaking. Yeah, just creatively, and you just couldn't you just couldn't miss. A, you know, every song was just like amazing, and and every, every everybody was putting their heart just totally out there, and just really seemed like a time where we, we were you know taking like I said the tradition of rock and roll songwriting and, and expression just totally to the next level, and um, like anything that burns out, it gets replaced by second rate versions. And yep. what happened was you know we have you know hot AC and modern adult, which to me. Um, They've evolved into going back to the song, and and it seems to be more song oriented. And people that are listening to it are going there because of that. They're going there right. because they've missed that from modern rock radio or radio in general. Well, the same thing sort of happened to VH1, didn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Because it, it started. It used to be that MTV was the younger, which meant 18 to 22 or 24, really. And then VH1 picked up the old folks, you know, in their 30s. <laughs> Um, sure. And then so that it kind of had that flavor to it. But then as MTV got more and more into so-called reality broadcasting and the house of style and reality sure. and all that stuff, uh, less and less music was featured on it. And by default, VH1 started picking up the actual music content. And the, and the people that were longing for that again. You know, exactly. That, you know, not necessarily getting off on real work, you know. And, oh, yeah. And being in it for 12 years now, it's, it's a trip because... You realize that the power of a great song can kind of like, you know, you put up these boundaries in your mind. And when you do a good song, people are attracted to it, and it's the boundaries sort of come down. I agree entirely, and even a lot of um, abstract egghead philosophers, to the extent that they know what a song is, uh, have tended to agree. Schopenhauer had this great theory of art that what happens with really great art, and he particularly had in mind music, is that it temporarily dissolves the subject-object boundary, that you actually become, in a sense, one in the state of flow with a really great song. And under those circumstances, it's a prime opportunity for a heart-to-heart transmission. Sure. And that you know, and that's why again we we love just bad boy rock and roll and all of that. It's great fun, but it's a moment missed. It's an opportunity missed to have a little bit more authenticity and a little bit more actual transmission occurring in that moment. And I think that's certainly one of the attractions that your music has for people. I think that's why they're so devoted to that. And it I is agree. a real opportunity. Actually. Well, we've talked about this before. Actually, what's going on? You know, like with the music, the fact that live we do rock. Yep. You know, and it does. We we do turn up very loud, we, and we enjoy that. That's the. Yep. I mean, that's what we. That's how we get off. Yep. You know, we couldn't be an acoustic band. It just wouldn't work. You know, yep. just too much energy. At the same time, I think that what happens when our lyric and our melody come in is it's the way it all comes together. Really, um, I don't know. It does something. There's something chemical that happens. The fact that it's so loud and it's also conjoined with this uh, well, melody. Melody. With the melody a, and then the lyric kind great of. Great psychologically yeah. kind of, you know, is, is open enough to interpretation. Everybody feels like they can be part of it. And all of a sudden, you know, there's this moment of oneness, yeah. you know, and you can't discount any of the, the aspects that bring that together, you know, whether it's loud, it's all, it's all happening. It's just, there's this sort of, uh, it sort of just congeals. And yeah. we, um, a couple of weeks ago, we were playing um, in Nashville and we were playing Lightning Crashes actually. And it, towards the end of the song where I felt like probably that, that moment, a oneness more than I've felt it in a long time. Uh, and it's another thing you, you also, you know, we go after it all the time, but it's also its own magic, you yeah. know? So it, and we were just, something was just clicking, and it was, my, every hair on my body stood up. I felt, actually, there were 15,000 people there, and they're all singing along, but there was a moment where it actually sounded like one voice. Yeah. 
It was so strange. It was like the most mysteriously weird, cool thing. And I thought, you know, after we walked off stage, I said, that, that is exactly why we do what we do. <laughs> I, I'm so addicted to that. It's like, can we do that again right away, please? Yeah, well, and when, that, when there's 15,000 people and it all sounds like one voice, uh, that's probably God singing at that point. <laughs> it, was just, it was hitting me hard. It was, it was time. The antennas were burning up. Um, and it is true, though, if you think about, I mean, the music that live does, the melodies and the tunes are really beautiful. And, of course, you could do them acoustic in a certain way. But it's also hard to imagine something like I Alone Love You, I Alone Can I, without that raucous sound behind it. I mean, it's a very soft, lovely melody. But something happens with the drums and the guitars and the whole cacophony of sound coming well, out. Well, talk about the shockers, and I think that, you know, there's definitely something physically that takes place when you are in the environment of that loudness. Yeah. But loudness with, you know, with the melody, with it all being musical, and, and all, it all has a purpose. Yeah. You know, but it's, it definitely does something physically. I know I feel it on stage because it's really it, loud. Yeah, tissue damage. <laughs> yeah, it's really no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it, no, it really does. I think it's exactly right. I think it's a subtle energy transmission, and it sort of permeates a person, particularly if they can relax into it, although it sounds strange to say you have to relax into loud music, but you really do in a certain sense. You have to get with the flow and sort of let yourself go and let the boundaries dissolve. And the whole loudness of it, if it's done in the right way, of course, loud fingernails on a blackboard won't do it. Um, loud live music will, and it's a whole altered state peak experience. Totally. And people come in, I mean, the thing is that people come into that environment wanting to do that. Exactly. They come in there wanting it and expecting it. Right. And so the battle's halfway done when you get up there because everybody's ready to go for it. And we're there to be that catalyst. Like I said, we're always, we're always searching for those nights like in Nashville a couple of weeks ago, but we're batting a pretty good average. I mean, we go up there with the right idea of what we're trying to do. It's not about a perfect musical show. It's not about any of that. It's really about getting to that space where everybody is conjoined as quickly as possible. In that one voice. Yeah, y'all are, are the Grateful Dead without drugs. Pretty much. I mean, <laughs> and I think people are astounded by that because, you know, I've, re I've read stuff where people say, you know, it's almost like, you know, people, people are coming to live for a, for a whole other deal. You know, they're, they're really into the lyrics and they're really there for, like, you know, this sort of experience. And, and we do have that kind of following where it's, yeah. it's, um, it is Grateful Deadish without the drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I think it's just, I think it's wild. I think it's great, and it's not obvious immediately how to do something like this. But an entire package at some point is this introduction via altered states into one's own higher nature, and then states can be converted into traits through practice, through an actual discipline, and then states get converted into stages, actual permanent competences. And so there's got to be some overall integral package where you sort of, you get an introduction. This is basically a transmission, the equivalent of instantaneous, direct pointing out to some of the deeper aspects of one's nature. And then it's like the concert is over, and then people get to look at types of discipline that can keep that high going on a permanent basis, so to speak. Right. And that's obviously an interest, your own interest in spiritual practice as well. Absolutely. And, you know, that's all, it's always been one thing for me. And, and people have always asked me, you know, how do you maintain being, a, you know, in a rock band and yeah. a spiritual practice? And I said, well, it, it's really not as different as you might think, you know, because the whole process of doing what we do on stage is a surrender, you know, kind yep. of how, how often do you find yourself in front of, you know, thousands of people having to do something? You know, it's really, you know, if you're having a bad day, whatever it is, you have to kind of bring everything yep. to it, just like you would bring everything to a meditation session right. or, 
So it really has never been all that difficult. But that's that's really art as a spiritual practice, though, isn't it? Oh, totally. And yeah. I mean, ever since the first song we ever wrote, it's always been about finding that the end of the search in that in a song. Yeah. You know, having it happen where we lose ourselves, and and so you know, we just I've just never really been all that afraid about telling people that's what that's how we equate it to a spiritual experience. Yeah. Everybody goes, oh, spirituality and rock and roll. Oh man, they can't go together. When nine out of ten people are in it for the same reason, they just can't call it spiritual. They have to call it something else. Right. And I've never been afraid to call it that. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm from York, Pennsylvania. <laughs> well, we, <laughs> we have a lot to thank those two gay boys for down there. I have to tell you Absolutely, that. Absolutely, man. I mean, you know, and it was just like it's such a diamond in the rough, that little story. It's yeah. There, and they're amazing. They're just like, so, <laughs> you know, and it's just because just, York, Pennsylvania is not the, uh, you know, the, the uh, center of uh, future thought and, 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 and whatnot. Nonetheless, that's how it turned out. That's how it turned out. Totally and cool. I walked into Coliseum Books and picked up, you know, three fifths of everything just because we're both bald-headed and we both wear glasses sometimes. That was <laughs> <laughs> we still have to do the uh, cover of Black Book. That would be the... I don't know what happened to that, and I just wanted to do that, and like this, we ended up with a different publicity person who I don't know what the hell happened to. It, well, it'll, we'll, you know, exactly, we'll do it. It'll be two bowling balls, and then people can figure out what the heck that's all about. Exactly. Um, okay, so you're you're off, and and Erin is staying. Actually, she's coming there. She's bringing the baby to Europe for our their first stadium show. Oh, you mean the one that that you were doing alone, the yeah. Amsterdam yeah, stadium? Yeah, the Amsterdam one. Oh, too cool. Two weeks. Uh, wild. They're wild. Well, this is going to be kicking. Uh, I, this is great, and I, I really can't wait to see how this unfolds. Well, we'll keep in touch, and uh, like I said, I have my laptop and stuff. So. Awesome, and then and then it's, it's certainly as soon as you get back in the states, we'll we'll have another talk and get caught up. Oh, absolutely. Okay, this is great, Eddie. Okay. Okay, buddy. Bye, bye. Hey, thanks for listening. We at Integral Life have been producing cutting-edge discussions and practices for over 15 years now, and most of the conversations are even more relevant today than when they were originally published, which is why we call them evergreen conversations. They never fade, they never spoil, and they only become more valuable the longer we sit with them, which is why we're making many of these classic discussions available to you. Each week, we're featuring one of these conversations here in our Everyone is Right podcast. So be sure to subscribe to this feed with your favorite podcast app. We'll also continue to post excerpts and sometimes full episodes from our ongoing conversations at IntegralLife.com. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, we invite you to become a supporting member in order to access our premium audio and video podcast, as well as to help support the emergence of integral voices in the world. You can get your first month for only $1, which will give you access to our full library of perspectives, practices, and presentations, all designed to help you thrive in today's ever-changing and quickly evolving world.